We're working through chapter 1 in the Confession. And it's not an accident that all the Reformed Protestant confessions begin with the Word of God. Because it's the Word of God that gives us truth, the Word of God that we begin to understand that this is the basis for everything. And so last week, we, the last couple weeks, we had looked at general revelation. It reveals God, but it can't save. Special revelation is needed to understand truly who God is and the, the blessing that God has revealed himself in Scripture. But we come to paragraph two. If you want to follow along with me. Under the name of the Holy Scriptures, or the Word of God written, are now contained all the books of the Old and New Testament, which are these, and then listed there. It's helpful when we're trying to find different books of the Bible. And sometimes like our mathematical uh, uh, our factors, we may not remember what 7 times 6 is, but if we remember what 7 times 7 is, we can get close. And so sometimes uh, knowing most of the books of the Bible, we can, we can kind of get in that, that area and, uh, and help ourselves out. How many of you have grown up doing sword drills at all? I'm just curious. How many of you don't know what a sword drill is? In a sense, you, you hold your Bible like, like, like this so that everyone has a fair thing. And then a passage is told and it's who can find it first. And then so you're not allowed those tabs. Uh, that's cheating. But um, the, the blessing to have the, the whole canon of Scripture. Paragraph three. Um, helps point out the limit to the scriptures in that the books commonly called the Apocrypha, not being of divine inspiration, are no part of the canon or rule of scripture and therefore are of no authority to the church of God, nor to be any otherwise approved or made use of than other human writings. Throughout history, it's a recognition that the Apocrypha Some of them would be considered good historical and maybe religious documents, but are not the same level as Scripture. Um, That they are not to be seen as Scripture, and even as the Confession states, not to be seen in any other way than we would look at another piece of literature. That doesn't mean we throw it away, necessarily. I I think there's a lot of wisdom that are needed in them, and when we think about the, the canonization of Scripture and you look through church history, this was an area that the church had to work on a little bit to bring some clarity. And as time progressed, uh, it was clear that these were not belonging to Scripture. And we'll see why in just a moment. Paragraph four. The authority of the Holy Scripture for which it ought to be believed depends not on the testimony of any man or church, but Holy on God, who is truth itself. The author, therefore, is to be... um, Let me read that better. But holy upon God, who is truth itself, the author thereof. Therefore, it is to be received because it is the word of God. We're reminded that when we open the scriptures, God, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, uses man to write it. But the one true author is God. And so as we were studying Exodus, we're reading Moses' words. 
But it was not truly Moses, the authority that we read. It is God because it is his word. And so we receive it as the word of God, or we are to receive it as the word of God, not just a book written by another person. It also doesn't get authority just because the church said so. But it is because God has declared it, and it is his word. In the rest of our time, I want us to focus on paragraph five on the backside. Kind of the question is, how did we get the canon of Scripture? How did we get to have the 66 books of the Bible that we have today? And this paragraph kind of hits on that. What was kind of used in thinking through why would these books be included in Scripture and other books not be included? Paragraph five, we may be moved and induced by the testimony of the church of God to a high and reverent esteem of the Holy Scriptures and the heavenliness of the matter, the efficacy of the doctrine, and the majesty of the style, the consent of all the parts, the scope of the whole, which is to give all glory to God, the full discovery it makes of the only way of man's salvation, and many other incomparable excellencies, and and entire perfections thereof are arguments whereby it does abundantly evidence itself to be the word of God. So let's kind of try to dissect that a little bit. To think of it this way, what are some of the tests to say this is the word of God? And there's this list of, of several things here. First of all, the heavenliness of the matter. That the things written about are not just common things. They're not just uh, baseline stories that would, would just fit the common folk uh, and the common practice of society. But there's a heavenliness of the matter. At times, there was debate on certain books of the Bible, sometimes on these, because the feeling was, well, this is just speaking of Song of Solomon, this, this love this uh, book on love or um, blanking right now. Uh, Ruth. Um, why, why is this in? And, and so the, the, the church struggled to say, is this really scripture? Is it not? But then you begin to see that this is not just speaking about some uh, personal love story, that this is a greater picture, that there's a heavenliness to it sometimes when maybe we don't see the word God himself in it. And so it is the heavenliness of the matter. The second thing is the efficacy of the doctrine. What does efficacy mean? Is Mr. Fell out there? What's that? The effective? Yeah. Uh, orthomolecular products, they're byline. Wendy, do you know it? Because efficacy matters. Um, because the effectiveness of something matters. And, and so it, what it's speaking of is that the word of God brings the effect. We, we see that the, the word of God is sharper than two, any two-edged sword. It brings forth, it, joint, uh, it, it divides even the, the joints and the marrow that it produces what God has designed. There's many books that we can read that bring forth some emotions, but don't have the power to transform 
the heart. The third one, the majesty of the style. This is one thing that I think modern day translators can, can sometimes try to push against. The majesty of the style. Um, that, that there's a beauty in its structure. Sometimes it's lost when we bring something from Hebrew or Aramaic or Greek. It's lost in any type of translation. But the seeking to bring some of that poetic feel to the Psalms and, and not just rip it out of its, its original language. Um, you look at Psalm 119. You'll see the Aleph, Beit, um, and, and then all the different letters of the, the Hebrew alphabet are the sections there. There are many different times where we, we see, um, even in our passage today, uh, there's some debate whether that being born again was two things or three things. Was it uh, a, living, uh, a living hope and inheritance and security? Because all three of those begin um, with, with the same Greek letter. And so some people think, well, this was a, a form of literature which pointing us to see these three points. And, and so those are things we don't see in English. And so the, as we look and we look at these uh, books of the scriptures, we see the beauty of them, the majesty of the style. Often we miss it when we don't take the time to look at it and to study it. That these weren't just random words written on a page, but there's so much great um, design and interplay, word plays that, that we, we need to be thinking about and to see those that are there in the scriptures. The consent of all the parts. What does it mean by consent? What's that? Unity. Unity? Pretty close. Yeah, that's the same idea. Yeah. That's the, that's the word I had, that there's an agreement. The agreement brings that unity, but that, that all the parts are working together. That you don't have one teaching, one doctrine over here, and one contradicting doctrine over here. But there's a, that coming together, that agreeing, and that as a whole we see that this is a unified uh, canon of Scripture. And then lastly, the scope of the whole, which is to give all glory to man. What? Yeah. The scriptures are written for the glory of God. What? Yeah. Well, and, and we were even discussing this at the fellowship meal. One of my boys received a, a card um, in the mail, and it had um, the message paraphrase of Job 14 or something like that. And the, the paraphrase took it very much away from the glory on God to the focus on man. In the translation. And, and was it true? Yes. But it, the whole of scripture is pointing to the glory of God. And so as we look back upon history. You, you see that the Hebrew canon was really. Um, the Old Testament was nailed down. And was really agreed upon by people. Uh, before the time of Christ. And then you have the, the New Testament canon. And often. Those who attack the, the scriptures try to say, well, the church is the one who made the Bible. No. It was God who created the Bible. 
and the church discovered what God had created. Because much of, um, much of church history agreed upon the, the canon of scriptures, we have it. That by AD 250, there was a great consensus that this is the word of God. And it wasn't that, okay, we put our stamp of approval, therefore it is the word of God. No, the church was always careful to say this is the word of God, not because we say it is, but because it is. Paul, in 1 Timothy 5, 18, he considers Luke's writings to be authoritative just as much as the Old Testament. Within the early church, there was a, sometimes a test Was the author an apostle or a close connection with an apostle? Is the book being accepted by the the body of Christ at large? Did the book contain consistency of doctrine or orthodox teaching? Did it bear evidence of a high moral spiritual values with which to reflect the work of the Holy Spirit? And so with this, with these tests, Constantine didn't create the Bible. But by the 300s, it was settled that we have the word of God. And it was rejoiced in that we were blessed to have it. And so the heavenliness of the matter, the efficacy of the doctrine, the majesty of the style, the consent of all the parts, the scope of the whole, which is to give all glory to God. But let's continue there. The full discovery of it makes of the only way of man's salvation and many other incomparable excellencies and entire perfections thereof are arguments whereby it does abundantly evidence itself to be the word of God. Then it finishes with this. Yet, notwithstanding our full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth and divine authority thereof is from, hear this, the inward work of the Holy Spirit. Bearing witness by and with the word in our hearts. That at the end of the day, we don't convince somebody that is the word of God. It's the Holy Spirit that opens eyes to say, yes, this is the word of God. It's not that Gnostic inner light that we discover ourselves that all of a sudden we have this supernatural truth. No, it's the Holy Spirit bringing forth that. It's not self-created. It's the, the Holy Spirit bringing that conviction that the eyes are seeing the beauty and the glory of Scripture. And what a joy it is, again, to just contemplate that we have it. That we have the perfect word of God. That we might by it grow up into maturity. That by it we might have faith. That by it God would be glorified as he reveals himself. Any questions? You got your apocrypha? Yeah, no. Okay. um, So, uh... Earlier in the paragraph uh, in five, you were talking about how some things are lost in translation from the Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic to the English. So what should our response be to those who say that exactly, that's why we should learn and only 
only read the Hebrew. That we shouldn't be having an English. Because even if you read Hebrew, you're still translating in your own mind. Because we all have, unless we were born Hebrew, we are all doing some form of translation. And I think we are blessed to be living in a time where we have good quality translations. I think there would be maybe some translations that we avoid because of that, because they're not true to the text. Um, for instance, the message, it, it acknowledges it's a paraphrase. And I, I don't think it is wise for us because it's man putting his own interpretation in it. I think as much as we can uh, stick to... Uh, you cannot ever do a word-for-word translation. It's impossible. It, it, because different languages uh, put syntax in different ways. And so it's going to all be in some bit of a little bit different line uh, of thought. But um, I guess my answer would be we're all translating to some point. And uh, because of the consistency of the translations today... We can trust that. Am I speaking for every translation? No. That. Is it good to, to learn or to find good tools that help us to see? Yeah. There's an old adage. The most dangerous person is a first-year Greek student. Because you know enough Greek to be dangerous to get yourself in a lot of error. That sometimes it's not until the second year, just using it more that you're, you're recognizing. Or sometimes we do word studies and we can get ourselves in messes. But I don't think that we should avoid that. Uh, we're, we're blessed with a lot of good resources uh, that, that can help us to understand. And the more we can learn, um, even different tenses of verbs and things can help, help us in our personal study a lot. Other thoughts or questions? Any? I found it uh, interesting that they didn't mention uh, like prophecies and the fulfillment of prophecies as part of the argument for hmm. the divine nature of the scriptures. Yeah. Hadn't thought of that. That is interesting. Andy said that he, he found it interesting that they didn't list one of the. Um, Reasons to show that it is the word of God is the uh, fulfillment of the prophecies that are contained. I think maybe just a, a side thought or a side note. Um, there are secular people who have made prophecies and that have come true. The consistency, no. But um, I think that is a blessing that we have as believers to look and see the prophecies. Besides him, Bruggen said he, he, you know, he's big on presuppositionalism, and he says that you know, evidence is not for the unbeliever. The evidence is to bolster the believer's faith, mm. to show us God's hand. So. Yeah. Thankful for that. Good. Well, this is always an area that um, I think it's good for us to learn, and I don't think, uh, I don't think most of us, and I'm speaking just very broadly. I don't think most of us have grown up really doing any study and looking to see how did the canon come to, 
to be? Like, how do we have it? What, what was happening in the translation processes? What are the different... Um, what are the different papyri that we have? Why is it? How, how do they work through those things? Matthew? So you said the Old Testament canon was determined before the New Testament mm-hmm. time. So like, when, when was that? Or who determined that? Because I know the New Testament canon was a combination of the early church councils and things like that. Yeah, well, and... Because uh, in seminary, I got hammered on this because I got asked the question, when was, when was the canon determined? And I said, 250. And uh, my professor said, which canon? Because the Old Testament would have already been received uh, in the time of Christ. That's much of what Paul is speaking about when he writes uh, that all scripture is inspired by God. What's he speaking of? The Old Testament canon. And so the church had already, I shouldn't say the church, the, the believers and, and the, the Jewish people had seen that that was the word of God um, before Christ. Um, I don't know the exact date. Um, I would say maybe even two, three hundred years before Christ. And so... What we, what we often think when we're thinking of the canon of Scripture, we're thinking the New Testament and the, the final canonization. But you see Jesus and Paul referring to the different breakups of the Old Testament, the, the history, the law, and the prophets. Um, you, you, sometimes a threefold or a fourfold, speaking of and summarizing. And, uh, and fitting into that. And so it is, it's just a good, re- good reminder for us. Does that make sense, Matthew? Yeah. So would it be accurate to say the Old Testament can be determined by the Jewish councils and the high priests and things like that? I don't remember how that was. But our rest has never been upon a council. Um, and sometimes people will point to that and to say, well, it was Constantine that wrote it down and it was officially made a canon. No, it wasn't because any council formed it. Uh, did we discover what God had already had there? Okay, we'll give that. And councils are, I think, a, a good thing. Um, they've brought a lot of clarity. Uh, even during the, the Q&A this week, uh, at the founders' conferences, uh, one of the one of the guys on the thing said, "If we just read more of church history, we would keep ourselves out of a lot of trouble." Because so often we're getting into these doctrinal errors that that faithful people have battled and really articulated and helped us to see. We need to draw some boundaries here, and we've we've forgotten about that, and, and so. Uh, Sometimes it takes a lot of work. Well, let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and thank you for uh, the, the truthfulness of it or that we can rest upon it. And Father, thank you for the effect that it has. And Father, I pray that you would, by your spirit, lead us into truth, that your word is truth, that you would 
cause us to see and to understand and to believe that the word of God is your word. Lord, that we would not just assent to that with our, our minds, but that our actions would follow. Lord, that we would submit to it to see joyfully um, obedience to your gracious design. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.